From USC Viterbi School of Engineering in Los Angeles, this is Escape Velocity. Support for our show comes from the United Engineering Foundation, advancing the engineering arts and sciences for the welfare of humanity. I'm Amy Blumenthal. And I'm Daniel Druhora. Today, we're going to introduce you to pioneers in neuroscience, patients, doctors, and engineers who are at the forefront of decoding the human brain. Every day, we do thousands of movements, many of which we take for granted. We brush our teeth. We brush our hair. We walk upstairs. We walk to our cars. We go to the gym or walk around the block. We type on a keyboard. We text endlessly. Or we hug a loved one. But not everyone has the same experience. What happens when our bodies don't cooperate with what we want them to do? This is one of those stories. And a snapshot of what happens when medicine and engineering converge to bring healing to children and adults imprisoned by their own bodies. I wanted to start this podcast by documenting one morning in my life. Just one morning and all the things that I do that I take for granted and wonder, what would it look like if I was a prisoner of my own body? Woke up, made coffee. Had coffee time with Simona. Woke up the kids and made a second pot of coffee. Got ready for work. Got the kids ready for school. Brushed my hair. Brushed Elias's hair. Had an argument with Elias about going to school. It's just a waste of time. But can you try to just cooperate for this once? Played piano with Annabelle. Had an argument with Annabelle about Elias's hair. I wish I wasn't part of this. Be careful what you say because it just might happen. Got yelled at by Simona for being slow at brushing Elias's hair. Made breakfast while Annabelle played piano. Burnt breakfast. Didn't have time to eat breakfast, packed it for lunch. Fed the fish. Drove the kids to school. Got caught off by a parent driving their kids to school. Got yelled at by the drop-off supervisor. Where do I need to go? Oh, just all the way forward. All the, all yeah. the way? Yeah, no, just, just to this very end, and the oh. girls are going to help them get out. Yeah, all right. right Took Sienna to preschool. Missed the preschool turn. Yeah, you missed it. My school not right there. Took the train to work. Tried to write a screenplay on the train. Got detrained when an angry passenger threatened the conductor. Took a second train to work. Tried to write a letter to my congressman on the train. Went to work with writer's block. Tried to write a piece about quantum computers. Tried to learn Cantonese. Posted a picture of a quantum computer online. Then, I met Ralph. And everything about what I did, every little action, took on a whole new meaning. My first step to meeting Ralph was a phone call I made to Ralph's mom to try to learn more about this medical procedure called deep brain stimulation, or DBS. I kept hearing about how this doctor engineer at USC, Dr. Terry Sanger, was combining electrical engineering, computer science, neurology, and brain surgery in ways that had never been done before to help kids walk again. Kids confined to a wheelchair, standing on their own two feet, Kids whose bodies were gnarled and twisted, who crawled on the floor, whose arms flailed so uncontrollably they would dislocate their shoulders. They had to be strapped to a wheelchair so as not to hurt themselves. Then, kids whose brains had been so severely damaged, their parents were told they'd never learn to sit or eat on their own, much less play baseball or a musical instrument. Some of these kids are now regaining control of their bodies thanks to this deep brain stimulation in Dr. Sanger's work. No, I'd say obsession, really to cure children's movement disorders. And you'll understand why in a moment when you meet Dr. Sanger. But for me, it all started with meeting Ralph. The first person I called was his mom, Marisa Hernandez. 
a woman who for 20 years held on to a single hope, the hope that her son, Rafael Hernandez, or Ralph, as he's known by those who love him most, would survive. Not just survive, but live life to the fullest. If you look back at their story, by all accounts, neither Marisa nor Ralph should be alive today. How old is Rafael right now, by the way? He just turned 23. We just had his birthday party on Saturday, but he loved to sing, so I had an accordion, and then he was just singing. To me, it's more therapy that he's able to use his left hand now, so even pulling the accordion is something he wouldn't be able to do, and now he does since the DBS, the surgery. He was born a healthy, he was um, a healthy baby. His dad was in the military, in the Marines, and before he was going to leave to Okinawa, we were on a family vacation, and we had a car accident. We were in a two-way highway. His dad fell asleep and, and swerved to the opposite side. So we hit a diesel truck head-on. I took half of the, the cars. It ejected his dad from the car and dragged him. And then what I remember is just waking up, not seeing him and the driver, and the door was gone. I got out of the car. I remember taking out the luggage because the trunk opened. And I remember going to the back and Ralph was in his car seat and the seatbelt and everything belted in. I took out his seatbelt when I picked him up. His car seat broke in half. His eyes were just rolling back. He was the first one that was taken through the helicopter because I knew there was something bad. Standing there on the side of that Arizona highway, watching the helicopter medevac her son to Phoenix, Marisa prayed Ralph would make it, but when she got to the hospital, doctors told her her baby had only hours left to live. And when he put him to go to like CT scan and saw how severe the brain injury was, he told me, I just looked at the clock and I said, this baby is not going to die on my watch. Ralph's skull was extensively fractured. To save his life, the neurosurgeon removed 46% of Ralph's brain. The neurosurgeon, after the surgery, he said, your son will be a vegetable the rest of his life, but he's alive. And at eight months old, he was. He didn't really do much. Didn't sit, didn't stand, didn't... He only, the only thing he knew how to do was drink from a bottle. It was pretty bad. Secondary to his brain injury, Ralph developed dystonia, a neurological movement disorder that would further lock him inside his body, causing involuntary muscle spasms and painful twisting movements. He also suffered powerful grand mal seizures that made it nearly impossible to go to school. He never gained more than 91 pounds, but Marisa pursued every possible angle through late-night ambulance rides, scary seizure episodes where she thought more than once she was going to lose him, and therapy after therapy. Getting him to walk at three and a half was a huge milestone, but she wasn't finished. There was language, social life, nutrition, and exercise, and at every twist and turn there was more bad news. When Ralph became a teenager and started learning to play football, Doctors told Marisa his dystonia was progressing rapidly. He'd be in a wheelchair within two years and remain there for the rest of his life. But no matter what the news was, she held on to hope. She made it her life calling. She even got a job working with kids and adults with brain injury trying to get her hands on the latest treatments, the latest information in the field. 
As a parent of a child with brain injury, you have to become an expert in everything, she told me. When her second husband left her, she was left to care for Ralph and raise her other three children on her own. I wish I would have recorded him eating a hamburger for the first time. He was 21 years old, and he was just like, Mom, this is good. Every morning to him, it's a new day, and he's happy, and he just goes on. And I'm like, well, if he goes on the way he is, why can't I go on? It's been a blessing. And I've always said that the last thing that anyone can take away from a parent, from, like, from me, is hope. As a parent of three children myself, I was curious to find out what made Marisa and Ralph go on, despite everything being stacked up against them. To get the full picture of what DBS has done to their lives, I had to meet Marisa and Ralph in person. Oh, you're making enchiladas? Mm-hmm. He doesn't know you're coming, so he's going to be so surprised. Yeah, this is where we have all our parties and everything. Uh-huh. Wow, look at that. Yeah, my right. That sound, that's a good sound. <laughs> Yo! Oh, oh, my God. You're here. Okay. Is it laugh for you or no? No, it's good. I'm going to sing, okay? Nice. Really? You play? I do. Okay. So this is my room. My we call it a studio. Ooh. My drums, my drumsticks. You have a lot of U.S. Marine stuff here. Okay. Yeah. Wow, why do you have so many Marine stuff? Oh, good question though. <laughs> because my dad died. Well, he was a Marine, but he had a children your dad. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh-huh. my dad died. And, oh, yeah. and, and my dad died, so he was the car accident. That's him right there. Yeah, that, that's him. And what was his name? That Ralph. I was pray for him. I was pray for him so bad. Nah, I love my dad. So he always take care of me. Um, let me close the door. He always take care of me. He knows why me like a bottle, and I was cry. I was a little baby, but I want to be honest with you. He died. He closed eyes like this. Mm-hmm. But you can still talk to him though Like say hi to him And I will sing for him I will sing for him Do you know what his favorite song is? Es nada manitas E cantamos Esa luz nos damos a ti What does it mean? It's about birthdays Wow look at all these medals you have These are cool How'd you find my house? Well, your mom gave me the address Oh Watching Ralph singing and playing accordion, it was hard for me to believe that this is the same young man who survived a head-on collision with a semi and had nearly half of his brain removed. And he's not even in a wheelchair. Marisa's relentless pursuit to give Ralph back his life eventually led her to discover deep brain stimulation and led her to Dr. Sanger's lab at USC Viterbi School of Engineering. In addition to being a provost associate professor of biomedical engineering, neurology, and biokinesiology at USC Viterbi and at the Keck School of Medicine, 
Sanger treats hundreds of children suffering from the worst neurological disorders at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. What makes Sanger unique in the medical world is that while he's a child neurologist, he's also an electrical engineer and computational neuroscientist. And this gives him a unique vantage point to solving a long-standing puzzle in the human brain. How does the brain break? And how do you model the neurological activity that causes the brain to break? Here he is speaking at a TEDx youth event in Hollywood to high school and college students. So the world is a very dangerous place, and our bodies depend on our brains to keep them safe. You might make a decision about whether to put a particular type of spider in your hand, or you might make a decision about getting married, or jumping out of an airplane, or eating some particularly strange food. Every second, every instant of your day, every movement you make is based on assessing risk. Now, what I want you to do is we're going to do a little scientific experiment. In your bags, you will find a spoon, and a marble. I want you to take those out, okay? Take the spoon and the marble out of your bags. We're going to do a scientific experiment. I'm a scientist. We're doing a scientific experiment right here, right now. And what I want you guys to do is I'm going to have you hold that spoon and move it around, and you will notice that you can take that spoon and you can move it anywhere you want, and it's not particularly hard enough. I asked you to sign your name in the air with it. You could sign your name in the air, and that would be fine. Now put the marble in the spoon, okay? Now try and do that. Ooh, your movement changes, right? I mean, I'm moving much more slow, Ooh, and I have to watch what I'm doing. And my arm gets a little bit stiffer. Now we're going to make it even harder. I want you to hold that spoon with the marble in it and put your hand next to the arm of the person on your left, because on the count of three, I want you to give them a gentle push, okay? So, you guys ready? One, two, okay, don't do it. Don't do it. But what I wanted you to see is before, as you were expecting the person to push you, your own arm gets stiffer. You get ready for that because you're ready for the risk, because you see it. Why do I care about this? I'm a child neurologist, and I work with children who have problems moving. So imagine that you have problems moving. Imagine that the difference between you and some of these children is if they always have that marble and that spoon. It's so much more dangerous for them to move, because their movements aren't controlled and they can't control them. So I want to know, how does a child whose movements automatically make bigger errors how do they deal with risk? How do they move? And how can I get them to move better? We have six umpires in each of our all-star games, but due to the importance of this game, all 12 umpires are here this morning. Number 23, Ralph if you missed it, that was Ralph and his mom cheering him at the Little League World Series on August 5th, 2017, when we went to watch Ralph bat and pitch in front of ESPN cameras, and then a static crowd cheering the Azusa Challengers, a team made up of children and young adults with disabilities. Yes, it's Ralph, who at four months old got multiple death sentences, and who is now living a field of dreams. One of the movement disorders that Sanger treats is dystonia. It's a condition that affects about 250,000 people in the U.S., making it the third most common movement disorder behind essential tremor and Parkinson's disease. The muscles aren't a problem. Often they can't stop contracting. The brain just can't give out the right signals. Dystonia is where you can't get the right pattern of muscles activated in order to move or reach or move your hands or speak. You have to get the right muscles at the right time, the right sequence. There are deep parts of your brain, called the basal ganglia, and uh, to some extent the cerebellum as well, which are responsible for the control. And when things go wrong in these areas, 
you lose the ability to get the right pattern of muscles. So your arms might wave around, or you walk in a very strange way, or you can't walk at all, or you can't speak, or every time you try to sit up, your back arches in such a way that you fall over backward. And these things over time can lead to changes in muscle and bone. It can be quite severely impairing, and at some point the children have difficulty breathing, and that is what makes this a life-threatening disease. A family with minimal resources, there's no way you can support a child like this and still support the rest of the family. That was Dr. Mark Leiker, a clinical assistant professor of neurosurgery at the Keck School, and he, together with Dr. Mark Krieger, performed Ralph's DBS surgery at CHLA. Dr. Sanger guided them to the targets inside Ralph's brain, carefully avoiding any damaged areas. The biggest win in the treatment of dystonia is this procedure called deep brain stimulation. And what deep brain stimulation is, is it's a pacemaker put into the basal ganglia. Deep brain sounds like you're messing around with some very critical parts of the brain, and we are, but it's not as dangerous, not nearly as dangerous as it seems. Deep brain stimulation, literally drilling into patients' skulls and zapping the deepest structures of their brains with electricity, has been around for a while. In fact, electrical stimulation of the brain was first applied in a human by Roberts Bartholo in 1874. It has since been used to treat more than 40,000 people with Parkinson's and essential tremor worldwide and is currently undergoing clinical trials as a treatment for depression and obsessive compulsive disorder. What allows Ralph to pitch a baseball and control his body, despite missing nearly half of his brain, are two thin wires with four electrical contacts at their tips, sending a finely tuned electrical pulse into a very specific and carefully selected region of his brain. This wire, called a DBS lead, reaches the deepest recesses of Ralph's brain, the globus pallidus, and the thalamus. The wire is connected to a pacemaker-like device implanted in Raphael's chest below his collarbone. This device, called the neurostimulator, or implantable pulse generator, contains the battery and computer source that generates the electrical pulses delivered via the lead to the brain. And then that pacemaker is used to stimulate this area of the brain. Once the surgeons are done putting these things in, the kids come back to me, and I can program this through the skin, find the correct settings for the child. And then gradually, over a period of six months, but sometimes up to two years, you'll see improvement, which is a surprising thing. You do a surgery, but the improvement happens gradually over a few years. No one knows exactly how DBS works, although Sanger is trying to find out. He believes the electrical impulses from the battery cause nerve cells to fire in a group, and this effectively overrides the abnormal signal patterns coming through those nerve cells. In effect, DBS substitutes a benign and somewhat boring pattern of neural firing for the disabling pattern that creates dystonia. Over time, the brain adapts to the artificial DBS stimulation by turning down the volume on the boring pattern of activity, which further blocks the dystonic signals from getting through. This is the lab where we do most of the electrophysiology, so that was motion capture, where we, we look at the movements, and here we look at the electrical activity of the brain and the muscles. Yeah. So we have, uh, oh, so the EMG system is here and charging. Excellent. Yes. Beautiful. In the nick of time, several of the people working with me, including uh, visiting faculty from uh, institutions in other countries. The cameras there are motion capture cameras, and we can uh, put markers on the children, figure out how they're moving, and then we can compare before and after the stimulation so we can figure out how the children are doing and are there things that predict what will make them better, who gets better from the procedure, and how much did they get better. One of the unique things about this laboratory is that we're bringing children into an engineering department. Normally, the engineers would go to the hospital and work there, but I can do a lot more in terms of uh, research 
education science that uses the engineering technology if it's here on campus. She's a master's student also helping us out. And my name is Enrique and I'm going to be conducting the recordings and the testings here and at the hospital. So I hope you and I get along pretty well because we're going to be good friends for like a week. <laughs> so we're going to put some sensors on your right arm. So every time you contract, uh, the sensors will send that signal to the computer. So we can start with uh, flexing the, the wrist. Pushing against me. The matches you can. Very good. Who is winning? The DBS journey starts in Dr. Sanger's lab, where through a series of tests, his team works to find out where in the brain the problem originates and how it manifests. Then, the child visits CHLA, where neurosurgeons put in temporary leads into different areas deep in the child's brain. Some of these leads are meant to record activity. Others send finely tuned electrical currents into the brain's relay center for movement and other strategic areas in the brain. With the temporary leads planted in their brains, the child then recovers in an epilepsy monitoring unit for a whole week. Sanger and his team are both stimulating and recording what the child's brain is doing when they sleep, when they move their legs, when they draw, and when they play cards. We're discovering things we don't even begin to understand, but the point is that we can try it. And when you're trying these things on the operating table, you don't really know. It's an artificial environment. The kid can't do very much. When we're trying these things in the epilepsy monitoring unit, uh, we had a kid get up and walk. Um, you can have them move. You can have them reach for stuff. You can have them eat. And we're getting data that nobody has ever gotten before. A week, 24-7, of data recording from a human, right? Not just a human, a child. When this was done in the past, it was done on the operating room with the patient under anesthesia. But Sanger and his team, they have to see what the kids are doing and what difficulties the child has as they are doing these tasks. They are looking for the switch that will turn off the dystonia. So we're gonna play a metronome and you're gonna go and try to complete one full figure eight at each click and trying to stay as close inside the red as you possibly can. You, you see, see better, better to your right. right. Okay, so probably move so. it this way a little mm -hmm. bit. The goal here is to use uh, the best students and postdocs and technology and everything from our engineering department to understand this at a whole other level. From the physician's point of view, they may not see the difference. They may not know. They, they will take a recording, they'll send it through some computer program, they'll get an answer out. The difference is that answer will have been highly processed um, and hopefully will be a much better answer than they could have gotten in any other way. The terabytes of data recorded during this week-long procedure in the epilepsy monitoring unit are then taken back to the lab, where the data is processed and analyzed. Step by step, the data gives Sanger and his team little clues to solving the great puzzle of what Aaron signals dystonia is giving out in the brain. Uh, we're recording signals from within the brain at the same time as we're stimulating one part of the brain. So we'll stimulate one part and record from another, and we want to see what the effect of that is. This gives us the possibility of exploring how the brain works. Whenever a neuron gets active, you have this very distinctive sound, right? So that you can connect the equipment to a speaker. So it can be like tac, 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 or tac, tac depending on the neuron or what's the function of that neuron, kind of the rhythm of the brain. You know, if you've ever heard a fax machine, there's a, a series of beeps and stutters and, and it's almost like we're listening to that fax machine of the brain and trying to figure out how a brain sends a fax machine from the cortex 
to the muscles just by listening to the little beeps and squeals and, and stutterings of the, of the phone line along the way. This is Dr. Aaron Robeson, a neurosurgeon at CHLA and assistant professor of clinical neurological surgery at the Keck School. Robeson developed the surgical technique for inserting temporary electrodes that Sanger created a whole new testing regime around with new data analysis techniques. Imagine that we're just listening to one little fax machine, but the messages are coming from millions and millions of fax machines. And what we're trying to do is figure what is in those faxes that the brain is sending to the body. This is much better than anything we've had before. It's huge amounts of data. It is nowhere near the brain itself. So I may have 160 wires in the brain. The brain's got 10 billion neurons. I'm, I'm off by a little bit. Once Sanger is convinced that he's found the right target, he schedules a second surgery for neurosurgeons to implant the permanent leads. The area of the brain where we're operating is like the downtown Manhattan of the brain. You can only place so many electrodes into the most critical areas of the brain before you run out of room. In an ideal world, we could blanket the entire brain with electrodes and test every possible iteration. Um, but the reality is we have to make some sort of calculated decision about what do we think is likely to work in this child's case so that we maximize the likely benefit to the child with any potential risks of the procedure. The success of this in the primary dystonia is, is huge. Nothing has that effect size. None of the medications we have or other surgeries we can do, there's nothing else. It really is tremendously effective with essentially, when done properly, there really don't seem to be any downsides to this. We don't seem to get side effects from this, which is surprising. Now that has been the experience in the genetic dystonias. The genetic dystonias are rare compared to the secondary or the acquired dystonias, which includes all of cerebral palsy, all of traumatic brain injury, all of hypoxic injury, and certain kinds of poisonings and, and certain kinds of uh, biochemical diseases. And in those cases, you have a physical destruction. It's not that there's some genetic abnormality that makes the basal ganglia work improperly. There's actual injury to the basal ganglia. And when you do deep brain stimulation in these children, you don't get nearly the same kind of effects. The published literature suggests that only about half of the children get a significant benefit at all. And when they do get a benefit, it's 20% or so. It doesn't fix the problem. Now, that's better than any medicine we have. And for some of the severe kids, we will do this. But it does mean that there's a large group of kids that we can't affect. This is a last-ditch effort. This is things that we're doing in kids who are really going to die otherwise or who are so severely impaired that, that nothing's happening. Jordan Baptista's dystonia was one of those cases. There's two types of dystonias. There's one that's brought on by like, a traumatic event. There's one where it's like in your genes, your genetics. Supposedly, that's the one I have. Jordan was known by everyone at school as Madam President because of her no-nonsense, hard-charging personality. I was basically normal till like first grade. And then I started getting muscle spasms in my hand and my writing and stuff. I would write and then all of a sudden my hand would like jerk out. I would disassociate my body parts. Like I would say, it doesn't want to. I actually taught myself how to write with my left hand. In second grade, that was like getting a little worse. And then I started going to my arm up my shoulder. It would like twitch weird. And then third grade, it was my leg. And then all of a sudden, like one day, like my neck was doing the same thing. I would literally have to like turn to look at you. Like my grandma was like, what the heck are you doing? Like, what's wrong with you? I was like, I don't know. It doesn't want to let me do it. My dad for a long time, he thought I was doing it for attention because my mom's out of the picture. He's kind of like back and forth with his new girlfriend. He thinks it's all in my head. I don't know why anyone would do that for attention. Learning to live with dystonia meant learning to live in a new body. It also meant learning to live with a great deal of pain.
So they also referred me to a child guidance counselor. So I went to them too, and they didn't know what it was. They were trying to give me um, crazy pills, I guess, like because they literally thought I was crazy. In third grade, I was starting to kind of like bend more because it was a muscle pulling. And it was really weird because it was always my right side. Then I would start like leaning this way. And then in fourth grade, that's when it like really hit the fan. I would really eat weird. I would sit at the table with my leg up and my knee on my chin. When I would write, I would have my knee on my temple. My actual temple on this side is still to stay a little bit softer and a little more indented than this side. I would put so much pressure that it was like starting to like press in. At one point, I was actually at a 90 degree curvature. She was 12 at the time. She had gone undiagnosed for six years, but she was a bright little kid, very sharp. When I saw her, she used a front wheel walker. Her torso was at a 90 degree angle to her hips. She had severe scoliosis as well. Um, she couldn't stand straight. She couldn't sit comfortably. She had a lot of pain. So Jordan had the DBS procedure at CHLA under Dr. Liker's care. Remember, he was one of the neurosurgeons that performed Ralph's DBS. He had done the surgery on many Parkinson's patients. But Jordan Batista was the first child with dystonia for whom he would perform DBS. Little did Madam President know that she would be a pioneer. I felt like I was um, an experiment. There were like all these white lab coats and they were just all like walking in the room. There was like 20 doctors that would come in looking at me and be like, oh my God, oh my God. Look. Jordan hated the extra attention and resented relying on anyone but herself. I would have the wheelchair, right? So I had AIDS. That was my worst. It's funny how now I'm an aide, but before I used to hate the AIDS. One of them was like a high fiver and it would drive me nuts. So, oh, high five. I'm like, lady. <laughs> and then she would be like, oh my. And one of the aides would cry because she's like, oh my gosh, she's so mean to me, Miss Bautista. I was like, well, I can't help it, you know? Like, I don't want to be more than I am. You know what I mean? I'm more of a, a hot mess. What are some of the things that you started to be able to do that you really appreciated that you were like, finally I can do this now. Walking, walking straight, walking right, walking like upwards, you know, instead of like sideways. Like freedom, you know, freedom. I was trapped in a body that I did not belong. What do you see for yourself now? What's next for you? I'm starting my career in like child education. I kind of want to like give back in a way, by working with kids that are, you know, a little different. Madam President has her life back. Any physical challenges she may have had are invisible to anyone who meets her. The first time we met, you know how he said goodbye to me? He shook my hand. I was like, wow, you're not normal? That's not normal. I don't think he likes me. It was like when we first decided to date. That's when she like told me, okay, this is, I have this. And it's just a part of me, my scars are a part of me, and she's asked me if I could accept it, and of course. <laughs> I love her eyes. <laughs> People were fatalistic about the disease in the past. Why are we studying kids with movement disorders? There's nothing for us to do. We inject Botox, we give them some baclofen, some benzodiazepines, and that's all we have. Now we can have a sharper eye on the disease process. What we've done is taken things that people have been doing for decades and just arranged it in a sequence that uh, enables us to treat these specific patients. And all the techniques 
All of the instrumentation, the hardware that we use has been used for quite some time now, but no one has really arranged the deck in this way. To me, if you're going to spend your life investigating a disease, you should investigate something that's not treatable and yet, and for which there's a potential to make a huge improvement. The goal is to understand how the brain breaks. So in some sense, it's not just that these kids are on the front line of understanding how the brain works. These kids are on the front line of understanding how we fix the brain when it breaks. As for Ralph, he's living life to the fullest playing baseball, singing, dancing, having fights with his mom, like any typical mom, young adult. Mom, okay, calm down, calm down, okay? Calm down, okay? I don't want to call you a word because you're doing busy. Okay, call you or text you, say my mom loves, my mom loves. Four years after his DBS, he got to meet Dr. Sanger again. Hi, Dr. Sanger. Yo. Hey, what's up? How are you doing? Good to see you. How are you? Yeah. Good. Good to see you. Good. good to see you. How are you? Good, good. Been a long time. Yes. God, you got big. I know, right? Isn't that amazing? Amazing. Yeah, I heard you did great last weekend. I miss you. I miss you. Yeah, I know. It's, it's really it's been a long time. Good. How's your kids? Doing good. Yeah. Doing good. Yeah. I hear you did great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Playing yeah. baseball. Look at you. It's incredible. Azusa Challengers National. All right. Yeah. Now we're doing football. Huh? Outside practice football. Football too? Yeah. Oh my god, okay. Wow. Okay, wear a helmet, okay? Alright. You know football. I'm gonna say that. Yeah. So, Dr. I'm gonna I wanna be honest with you, okay? Can I be honest with you? No matter what. No matter what, no matter what, I'll be your friend. I want you to love me right here in your heart. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for my life and thank you for my Thank you for showing me what you're doing. This is, this is why I do this. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is why we have doctors like Dr. Sanger. No, no matter what, I'm here for you, dude. No matter, I'm here for you, man. <laughs> From the USC Viterbi School of Engineering in Los Angeles, thank you for listening. Hi. Fancy! Do you want to Para 